This is Dan Wilson Uncancelled. Let's go. Now, just when you thought the gender ideology debate couldn't get any more fiery, Donald Trump has weighed in. Speaking at a recent rally in Georgia, the former president lashed out at Supreme Court nominee Kalanji Brown-Jackson, criticising her refusal to define the word woman during a Senate confirmation hearing. And a party that's unwilling to admit that men and women are biologically different, in defiance of all scientific and human history, is a party that should not be anywhere near the levers of power in the United States of America. The issue of biological sex has been pushed to the fore recently due to the prominence of trans athletes infiltrating women's sports. With six foot one transgender swimmer Leah Thomas's NCAA title win drawing worldwide attention. And the issue has crossed the Atlantic with cyclist Emily Bridges, who competed as a man until a few weeks ago, being barred from racing in the national championships on Saturday. Then, just yesterday, it was revealed that trans goalie Blair Hamilton, who used to play men's football, has been selected for the England University's women's side. Well, weighing in on the hot-button issue is 11-time NCAA All-American swimming champion Jerry Chanteau, Jerry, great to have you here. Do you think female sports is at risk of extinction if this madness goes on? Uh, thank you for having me. Sadly, I do. I think that we are at the precipice of what that could look like ultimately if we don't stand up and make some changes. Um, we need our governing bodies. We need the NCAA to stand up, protect women and their right to their fairness in sport, their opportunity in sport, and uh, the right to the protection and privacy that they should also be having while participating in their sport. Could you believe that Leah Thomas was able to compete in the NCAA competitions, which obviously was such a big part of your career? I really couldn't initially, but once I started to really wrap my mind around what was happening, um, it has nothing to do with Leah, unfortunately. It has everything to do with, uh, like I just said, the NCAA and our national governing bodies over each sport that ignored this issue. The NCAA even said in February, okay, we will follow the national governing body, which is USA Swimming, and what their policy on transgender inclusion would look like. The USA Swimming did their job, came out with their ruling, and the NCAA said, well, too little, too late. We're not going to implement that this season. And uh, we don't want to take away from those athletes that it might. Yeah, indeed. I, I, I completely agree. This isn't about Leah Thomas. But the issue is that if you had been racing against Leah Thomas, it wouldn't have been fair. I mean, your husband is an Olympic swimmer. I presume you know that physically you couldn't beat him in a race and that doesn't make you not an incredible women's swimmer. Correct. Women, um, Title IX will be 50 years this June and women's category of sport was carved out because we knew that athletically we are different than males. Um, we are not less than, we are not weaker than, we are different than males. Hence yes. the reason our category has been carved out for us. And all of a sudden, 
unless I'm missing some recent science that has come out, we need to continue to make sure and honoring Title IX, which is we will not discriminate based on sex. And I think that's the really big word we need to honor here. Um, the, the word woman is a social gender role, which I am happy to honor for Leah and any other trans woman athlete, transgender athlete. And uh, that doesn't pertain though to sport. And we need to honor sport and recognize sex above gender in order to keep fairness in sport, uh, unless we would like to not include women anymore. So I think our priorities, I think um, the UK Sports Council in October said that sport's gonna have a decision to make. What do you value, inclusion, fairness, or safety? I, you're not going to get inclusion and fairness with trans uh, women athletes in the female category. There's science that does back that, and there are papers that back that at this point. And we need our governing bodies to honor that science, to listen, and to make sure that we protect not only these women, but also the transgender athletes that at this point, in my opinion, are treated unfairly as well. The problem is, Jerry, some of these sporting bodies have bought into the woke orthodoxy. They are in cahoots with organizations like Stonewall, which do prioritize inclusion above anything else. Do you think it might be the responsibility at some point for government to actually get involved in this and looking at passing laws to protect women's sport? Absolutely. I mean, here in the United States right now, uh, the only way that we can protect uh, sex identity over gender identity within our school systems and within sport is by passing laws. So I do think it is going to be something that people need to educate themselves on. I think that most people look at this as, well, it's only sport which is also important, of course. And maybe women are only losing out on titles or funding or scholarships or their future careers and opportunities. But there's so much more. You're losing out to be on the best stage that they could possibly be on. You're talking about um, the football player that's going to be a goalie. You're, you're taking away an experience for a female athlete that has trained their whole lives to be represented in the biggest way that they can, that experience changes you as a person. My athletics gave me a confidence and changed the person I am today. Had I not had that, maybe I wouldn't have the confidence or ability to be on your show right now. It shapes women in all sorts of ways. And that's more of what I'm hoping by speaking out it is more than just sport. You are literally going to change the way girls and women are going to be raised and therefore then be in society later and the way they contribute later in life. Such fascinating points. Thank you so much for being brave enough to make them. That was 11-time NCAA All-American Swimming Champion, Jerry Shanto. What the French time now and Vladimir Zelensky has taken a bitter swipe at the United Nations Security Council saying the alliance has been unable to guarantee safety and peace in Eastern Europe in the face of Russian aggression. Speaking via video link to a UN meeting in New York this afternoon, the Ukrainian president questioned the value of the 15-member Security Council which has been unable to take any action over Russia's invasion of Ukraine because Moscow, of course, is a veto power. I would like to remind you of Article 1, 
Chapter One of the UN Charter. What is the purpose of our organization? Its purpose is to maintain peace and uh, make sure that uh, peace is adhered to. And now the UN Charter is violated literally, starting with the Article One. And if so, what is the point of all other articles? But Zelensky hasn't just been criticizing the UN. Yesterday, he also took aim at Germany and France, blaming former German Chancellor Angela Merkel and ex-French President Nicolas Sarkozy for 14 years of failed diplomacy with Russia, enabling war crimes in Ukraine. So, Nigel, what do you make of Zelensky hitting out at the UN, Germany and France? Well, the UN doesn't have much power over this. It's a big, big talking shop. But I do think when it comes to Europe, it's, it's quite interesting, isn't it? Because we get these big, bold, grand statements that come from European Union member states and from Brussels itself. We get the French president on endless, it seems, phone calls uh, with, <laughs> with Putin uh, that achieve nothing. Um, and when push comes to shove, you know, sanctions are a complete waste of time. All the while, Germany is funding Vladimir Putin's war machine. Be in no doubt about that. They go on buying gas. They can't see any way out of it. And it reminds me of that wonderful confrontation between Trump and Merkel when he warned her. He said, you know, you're all accusing me of being somehow working in tandem with Russia. Actually, it's Germany that have made themselves utterly dependent on Russian gas and Russian oil. Uh, and all the while, all the while the Germans go on buying vast quantities of these, of these materials. Uh, Putin's got the money for his war. So there is so much hypocrisy and doublespeak around this that it's quite extraordinary. Macron does deserve a lot of criticism, Nigel, because, you know, 24 phone calls with Putin. What, what's he achieved? <laughs> well, he's shown the French people that he's a statesman and he's the man you must re-elect and not that nasty Marine Le Pen who might do such dreadful things. I, honestly, I, I think it's, it's posturing, it's positioning, it's electioneering. He has achieved three-fifths of five-eighths of nothing. Now, Nigel, I want to come to breaking news closer to home now. It's, of course, been reported today that Boris Johnson is set to announce plans to send illegal channel migrants to Rwanda to be processed. The Home Office is neither confirming nor denying the reports. Mm. And you're not convinced of this as a plan? Well, look, I mean, they have to do something. And they have ahead of May the 5th and the local elections to be seen to do something. I mean... You know, just think about it. 28,500 people came across the channel last year. At the moment, at the same time in the year, we're running at triple that figure. And they know, the Conservative Party, from their polling, that especially in the red wall seats, this is infuriating voters who thought by voting for Brexit and then voting Johnson in 2019, we'd get back control of our borders rather than be made an international laughing stock as we currently are. Because we're part of the European Convention on Human Rights, returning people to France is not possible. Actually, Dan, even removing failed asylum seekers is very difficult, all the while we're signed up to ECHR. They had to do something, so offshore processing was the obvious thing. What are the upsides? Well, the upside is, would you pay a trafficker 5,000 euros if you thought within 48 hours of coming into Dover, you might land in Rwanda? That's the possible upside.
The downside is the cost per person will be simply vast, and it's only a matter of weeks or months before we start getting reports that people are being treated badly in camps in Rwanda, people are being abused, exploited. Uh, so I don't think long term this is the solution. And actually what I think is we need Brexit 2.0. And Brexit 2.0 not only redefines the 1951 definition of what a refugee is, because it's hopelessly outdated in the modern world, but we have to leave the European Convention on Human Rights, we have to leave the auspices of that European court in Strasbourg. That is the only way to, and I quote you, Boris Johnson, take back control of our borders. Uh, and until they do that, and nothing effective, really effective, is going to happen. Nigel, we need more than just talk this time, don't we, as well? We're not going to be sucked in by the possibility of a plan before the local elections. We've heard about enough possible plans. We need something concrete. Yeah, we do. Um, and they're going to try and push this through. I'm certain of that. Um, there's a cabinet meeting tomorrow at which this will be discussed. I've no doubt it'll be approved. There's some opposition to it. David Davis is voicing concerns about it from the back benches. I think it'll happen. And I, I think what will happen also, Dan, is before May the 5th, you'll see a couple of plane loads of people heading off to Rwanda, and then Boris and Priddy can say, we've solved the problem. They won't have done. Why do you think offshore processing won't act as a deterrent, Nigel, in the same way as it did in Australia? Well, I think in the short term, it will help. I've made that point already. You know, so I'm, I'm sort of giving, there's a partial short-term endorsement, but a long-term headache. I mean, that's the way that I see it. And by the way, Tony Abbott, who was the Aussie Prime Minister mm. determined to deal with boatloads coming into Australia from Indonesia, he started off with offshore processing. He was then met with global condemnation of the conditions in those camps. He then said, we're going to change tack. Nobody that enters Australia via this route will ever, ever be given refugee status. And that was when they started. Do you know what they did? They towed the boats back to Indonesia. Mm. And guess what happened? They were condemned by the UN, the European Union, the globalists. But you know what else happened? People stopped coming. I mean, so in the end, they, they did go through this process of trying offshore processing. In the end, returns were the only effective policy. That is the way to cut off the traffickers' trade at the knees. It takes guts. It takes courage. It takes leadership. It takes accepting you're going to be criticised by the global elites, but you cannot do it all the while you're signed up to ECHR because we are, after all, a law-abiding country. That needs to be dealt with. It needs to become a real issue as the next general election approaches. Of course, Nigel, you read the Westminster gossip and Priti Patel's position as Home Secretary again coming under the microscope as a result of her failure to stop the boats. Uh, do you mm. buy that? Well, look, I mean, I think actually Priti Patel, of all the people in the cabinet, um, is probably politically the closest to you and I. Mm. But I think she actually believes in free markets. She believes in entrepreneurship. Uh, you know, she believes in proper law and order. 
and she absolutely believes in proper border controls. But she's found herself, as Home Secretary, talking a big game, but unable to deliver. And she finds herself working under a Prime Minister who frankly couldn't care less about this. A Prime Minister who, when he was Mayor of London, offered mass amnesties to people who'd arrived illegally, which, of course, only encourages more to come. And I, she must think to herself that in terms of her own career progression, probably accepting the job of Home Secretary was a mistake, because when you overplay expectations and under-deliver, you've got a real problem. So she is in a right pickle with this. Hence, I would guess behind the scenes, she's pushing Rwanda harder than anybody else. She's likely to get it accepted. In the short term, it may work. And we might see front pages of the Daily Mail saying, wow, isn't it wonderful? Problem solved. This is a short-term fix. It is not a long-term solution. Fascinating analysis as ever. Nigel Farage, thank you so much. And of course, Nigel back with Farage tomorrow night at seven here on GB News. But it's time now for Uncancelled. And this is where Britain's top commentators speak out on controversial issues without the fear of the cancel culture sweeping the rest of the media. As the conflict continues to rage in Ukraine, has the West's response hinted we're in danger of losing the woke war on free speech? Blanket censorship in authoritarian countries like Russia is nothing new. But our retaliation to the invasion of Ukraine has brought the battle with cancel culture into sharp focus as authorities try to ensure a conformist line is towed. Ofcom revoked Russia broadcaster RT's license. The government threatened to crack down on academics questioning the mainstream narrative. And big tech's truth police relaxed rules for people living near Ukraine who wanted to wish death on the Russian invaders. Author Mick Hume joins me now. Mick, great to have you here. Are we relinquishing the moral high ground and playing into Putin's hands somewhat by shutting down our right to freedom of expression around the war? Uh, good evening, Dan. Yes, there's a definite uh, danger there. You know, um, we all know that uh, truth is the first casualty of war, and that usually means that um, free speech is, is pretty close behind it in the casualty list because all sides in a conflict try and suppress uh, the, what the other side's saying and get across their, their version of events. Um, so as you say, we have blanket, uh, naked state censorship in Russia uh, under Putin. Uh, we have a Ukrainian government imposing a uniform view on all of its TV channels and banning political parties from talking if they're seen as being uh, at all sympathetic to Russia. But we're not facing that kind of uh, Orwellian situation. But nevertheless, as you, as you indicate, we are looking at a situation where... Um, through various measures, governments and big tech are trying to make sure there's a conformist view of the war. And I think it does risk us uh, surrendering the high ground uh, uh, to Putin. This, but there are both practical and principled reasons why we should be standing for free speech, even in the middle of a war. In fact, particularly in the middle of a crisis like this. Um, practically, I think it is a great gift to Putin for us to start censoring RT or any other Russian uh, uh, outlet. It l allows him to take the moral high ground and to say, well, there you are, I was right. Behind the facade of Western democracy, they're all fascists, really. And it's practically important because, first of all, in Britain, 
there's no um, uh, traction for Russian propaganda. Nobody's interested in what Putin says. And so it doesn't do any good banning it here. But around the world, there are a great number of people who, contrary to the impression we're sometimes given, don't just believe whatever the BBC World Service says. You know, there are any number of countries that did not support the UN motion uh, uh, condemning Russian uh, invasion of, of the Ukraine. A lot of people around the world who don't trust yeah. the West. Well, exactly. And, 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 and we need to understand why they think that way, don't, don't we, Mick? And that's why, personally, yes. I was opposed to RT being removed from British Airwaves because, personally... I actually found it quite helpful to know what crazy information was being fed to the Russian people. I viewed it almost as an education. Exactly. It's, it's very useful source of information from that point of view to see the world um, through the Putin regime's eyes and see the, what they are saying to their people is a very important weapon for us. And also, as I say, we've got to win the argument against that with the world and not be assuming that if we ban it, that's basically saying not in front of the children, don't allow people to see this. Well, that's not a convincing, that's never a convincing argument. Censorship is always a gift to whoever you censor because it allows them to play the martyr. Mm. Mick, I was also very concerned you raise it there with what Zelensky did in terms of the media and opposition yeah. parties. But how do you respond when folks say, look, that's what happens during wartime and it's always happened during wartime looking through history? Well, that's really true, Jan. I mean, um, every uh, government of any stripe, not only, you know, Hitler and Stalin but any or Putin, but any government of any stripe, right from uh, the Paris Communards through, the, through Ameri elected American governments through every conflict of the last 200 years, have always attempted to control information behind their lines in a life and death struggle. That's completely understandable. Nevertheless, it's, it's still a shame that he felt necessary to do that because it does uh, undermine his, his stance as being the pro-democracy, pro-freedom fighter. And even in the middle of a world war, you know, um, in Britain, in World War II, let's remember we're not in the middle of a war, we're, but we are in the middle of a culture war for our own freedom of speech. That's why it's important we take a stand on this. But even in the middle of a world war in Britain, there were people like uh, a 28-year-old Michael Foote who led a campaign against the Labour Home Secretary Herbert Morrison's threats to um, ban the Daily Mirror for, for criticising the brass button uh, knobs who were running the British Army in 1942. And Michael Foote said, if we're going to have liberties in this country, we've got to fight for them, fight for them, fight for them again. That's an absolute lesson that we, we, we should, we should um, take to heart 80 years later. So the fact that we're in the middle of a crisis means that these principles are more important to stand for, not less. They're not luxuries. You can say, oh yeah, free speech is okay in peacetime and everything's going well. It's now when we're having a proper debate about what does our society stand for? What is Britain as a country prepared to stand and fight for? You know, what values do we do we think are worth championing? This is the moment when open discussion, free debate and argument is more important than ever. That's why I think censorship is always a gift to the enemy. Mick, how do you think the British media have performed throughout this war? And do you understand why there is so much scepticism from some folk towards the mainstream media, given how they feel they were lied to over the COVID crisis the preceding two years? Yeah, well, I think there's... Those are two separate and connected things, then, aren't they? There is a, a kind of bank of mistrust um, of uh, media and government narratives, um, which is built up in, in, powerfully in a section of, of, the, of the population over the last uh, couple of years. And in fact, before that, going back, you know, many people uh, like myself, uh, uh, Brexiteers, um, thoroughly mistrusted everything that were, the media told us about the debate about EU membership and Brexit. 
since not since 2016. So there is that, and that's a very difficult issue to to, to deal with to restore trust in in, in government and um, um, media institutions. But there's also no. Uh, uh, sorry. No, no, no. You go on. Um, yeah. So uh, there's there's that. There's also um, the question of the, the performance of the British media, and I think there's been some absolutely heroic and very brave, courageous journalism taking place. There's also been, uh, on the other hand, um, a very conformist view where everything is just repeated basically along one line. Uh, very few serious questions being asked about what's actually happening on the ground in the war zones. Um, and a lot of it, what I would call emotionalism. You know, there's a lot of uh, journalists who are concerned about telling us how they feel about the war and how upset they are. And I'm not, I'm not doubting the, the authenticity of their feelings, but you know, feelings and, and fear and horror doesn't explain to you the context in which wars happen. What is this conflict about? What's the cause of it and what's the consequence of it likely to be? Just showing us continually the pain and suffering of the people is not an answer to that. And the feelings of the journalists reporting it is not an explanation or an answer to that to that problem. So we need a bit more context and analysis, I think, uh, and a bit less um, um, the journalism of emotionalism of, of, of just pouring it out. I would personally like to see a bit more emphasis in the British media coverage of the not just of the suffering of the Ukrainian people, but of the her heroism of the Ukrainian people. You know, they've been standing up to these foreign aggressions with remarkable uh, um, uh, guts um, and by all accounts winning some significant victories. And I would like to see far more emphasis put on the heroism of the, of the Ukrainian people, of them as being the kind of authors of their own destiny, rather than this continual emphasis on them as, as, as just um, uh, uh, weeping and, and uh, uh, suffering victims. Very good advice. Mick Hume, absolute pleasure to have you. Thank you so much. Dan Wooden here again. Thank you so much for listening to this edition of my podcast, Uncancelled. Did you like what you hear? Well, remember to subscribe, rate and review and join me for more newsmaking interviews, fiery debate and free speech on Dan Wooden tonight every Monday to Thursday from 9pm till 11pm on GB News.